training workshop uh, with some people from Brighton Salford who've been doing lots of organising in Brighton around housing. Uh, sign up. Uh, I'm going to stop abusing my uh, chairing privileges now. So I want to introduce you to our panellists. We're going to have some conversations about left culture, uh, the role of culture in political, political formation, uh, what kind of culture we should producing now, and then spend a bit of time thinking about like after the revolution, what's culture going to look like. Um, so um, our panellists are um, Jack Frayne-Reed, um, who uh, hosts uh, The Real Politic um, podcast and is culture editor at New Socialist. Uh, his greatest cultural production is a play called Tim Peake's Farron Walk With Me. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to hear more about that. Um, then we have Alex Niven, who is formerly assistant editor at the New Left Review and currently teaches English at Newcastle University. Um, he's written books including Folk Opposition and has a forthcoming book, New Model Island. Um, we have uh, Rianne Jones, uh, who grew up in South Wales, now lives in London, writes on history, politics, popular culture and their intersections. She's written approximately a million brilliant books about uh, culture. Uh, most recently has edited an anthology of women's music writing called Under My Thumb, Songs That Hate Women and the Women Who Love Them. Um, and she's co-editor of uh, the website New Socialist and writes for Tribune magazine uh, and blogs at Velvet Coalmine. Uh, we also have a fourth panellist who's going to come when he's done on the football panel because football is not culture. That's the official doctrine of this conference. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Kennedy is on his way. Um, he's written a couple of books for Repeater, most recently Authentocrats, Culture, Politics and the New Seriousness. Um, so we'll have less fun once he's arrived. Uh, and he teaches English and Cultural Studies for the University of Gothenburg. Um, so I wanted to start by asking the panel about their own kind of history and the role that culture has played in that. So I'm going to ask each panellist to say a little bit about the role that the culture played in their own political formation. So over to you. We'll go um, along the line. Can I ask you to stand up if that's possible when you are answering just because I'm quite aware that your voices will get stuck at the front row. Yeah, does someone else want to go first? Do you want to go first, Jack? Uh... I, oh, I wasn't sure if you were saying me or Rianne should. Um, I don't know. Go Whichever for it. one. What, what, which one? Which Rianne, how about you? <laughs> okay, hi. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, my culturally formative years were um, the 90s, uh, probably the same as Alex. I don't know if, you wanna, if we're going to cover similar ground. Um, I'm going to be really predictable to start off and talk about being a fan of the Manchester Preachers. If we've got any Manics fans in the house tonight, okay, great. Um, yeah, I mean, their, um, their appeal to me was entirely rooted in um, culture. First of all, to give you a bit of historical context about um, the South Wales Valleys, where I um, grew up, this was an area of the country that had been defined for uh, centuries, really, by its heavy industry, by uh, coal mining and by iron and, uh, and steel production. And as most of you probably know, that was comprehensively um, destroyed in the 80s um, during the miners' strike. So um, in the 90s, when I was a teenager, that part of the country was defined by uh, its failure to um, recover from the 80s, I guess, and all the sort of um, social and psychological fallout of um, having an entire industry and a way of life uh, taken away with very little left to um, replace it. Um, so the, the Manics were from a very similar cultural background to myself. Um, and that sort of, the very particular post-industrial bleakness um, that I didn't see represented anywhere else in popular culture in the 90s was something that they um, 
represented um, and which spoke to me. Um, in another sense, they themselves were immersed in culture and in the political uses of culture. Um, and they expanded my cultural horizons by talking about um, political history, philosophy, cultural theory um, in, in a way that I wouldn't have got uh, anywhere else. This was all pre-internet, remember, so I wouldn't really have gotten um, any of those things from any other sources. Um, on a wider, um, a wider point, I guess, the um, music press in the 90s um, was really quite explicitly political in a way that it's difficult to reconstruct now. Um, there were a handful of writers in the New Musical Express and Melody Maker who um, were very explicit in um, looking at popular culture and looking through music through a lens of critical theory. Um, which probably sounds uh, dreadful when I, when I put it like that, probably sounds incredibly dry and off-putting. Um, but it wasn't when I was I received it as like a 13 or 14 year old, it was very compelling, very engaging, often very funny. I remember reading um, like a Spice Girls review that referenced um, the 1968 protests and situations and that, that was my first uh, introduction to that. Um, and they'd often, um, in a more grounded way, they, uh, these writers would often ask the musicians that they interviewed about their own political beliefs, um, which could be interesting, could be interesting and horrifying, but was always uh, always interesting. All of this came to a really ignominious end in the late 90s, and uh, um, when um, you know, the prevailing winds changed, the, um, the music press sublimated everything towards um, commercial imperatives and looking for the next big thing. Um, and also in general, in culture and um, in mainstream politics in the 90s, I really took over. Like it just, it just wasn't cool to be um, to be earnest about anything. It wasn't cool to have sincere political beliefs or to sincerely interrogate uh, things. It wasn't cool to overthink things. You were a bit of a freak if you did that. Um, the Manics obviously um, contradicted all of that, and they also contradicted the idea that was uh, taking shape in the 90s and is still with us now that the working class. You know, are, are a bit thick. We're not, not not really interested in culture. We don't uh, we don't really think about things like reading or, or theory or history um, and all that kind of thing, which is obviously bollocks. Um, so the Manics were quite an affirmative band uh, to be into at a time when, um, as as a working class individual, I felt that my identity was getting a bit lost in both culture and politics in the nineties. Oh yeah, I'm good. Well, I'll stop there, but I will say that really depressingly, because I was so into this handful of music writers um, in the 90s, 20 years on, the majority of them are really virulently um, like anti Corbyn, and I've mostly become centrist dads. So I, I sort of like occasionally they cross my radar on, uh, on Facebook or on Twitter, and it's just very grim and depressing. So uh, never, never tweet your heroes is the message there. Um, yeah, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you. This is possibly the weirdest uh, panel for a math that I've ever uh, encountered. Um, is, how's the sound? Can you sort of hear I'm saying? You need to be really yeah, I'll, I'll try and I've been doing some vocal exercises. Uh, Can you speak quietly down there, please? <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really want to sort of, sort of circumvent some of these sound issues by saying that my experience was, was very similar to, to Rian's. Uh, my sense of both culture and politics really its kind of starting point was uh, you know growing up in a remote part of the northeast of England encountering the weekly music press for me it was primarily NME I never 
sort of got around to the slightly cooler, slightly more intellectual Melody Maker uh, for my sins. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I wonder if, if, if I, I think one of the sort of realizations as as as, as time's gone on and as, as I've got older, I guess, is a sense that that kind of the culture that Rian summarised very eloquently of music and politics being, uh, you know, in some way in synthesis, um, whether that you know, whether that culture exists any any longer. I mean, as I've got older, I've sort of uh, very much lost the sense that, that that's the case. Um, I was briefly in my 20s in a, a, a popular beat combo, uh, everything, everything, kind of relatively um, professional and relatively successful kind of indie band. Um, and some of the experiences I had while I was in the band were quite, quite eye-opening and quite kind of uh, disillusioning in lots of ways about the kind of lack of a political dimension to uh, contemporary music, contemporary, you know, popular music in particular, which was quite, quite sort of devastating in some ways. You know, having grown up with this sense, you know, derived from the countercultural music press, um, that music could be uh, political, that it could affect change, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I, I sort of wonder whether it's possible to talk about us now being in a kind of post-countercultural uh, period, um, which isn't to say that there aren't you know, countless examples of art, music, so on and so forth, uh, being interesting, being politicised, etc., etc. Um, it's just that I, I wonder whether you know music and culture has that same kind of late twentieth-century sense of being um, a kind of gateway into politics. Um, and actually, I wonder whether it's you know that's not such a bad thing. I wonder whether we've kind of moved on to a slightly more uh, a phase when politics is very much in the foreground as opposed to culture so that um, in the past uh, for example you know people always kind of cite going to you know punk gigs in the late 70s early 80s and you know kind of you know reading a punk fanzine and then you know maybe there would be some kind of politics in the back uh, which is great but the kind of political payoff is as Rian uh, summarized very eloquently was was you know it didn't didn't quite work the kind of politics that emerged from that late 20th century moment uh, you know, in some cases were quite reactionary, as in the case of these kind of 90s music journalists who, are, you know, are very anti-socialist, anti anti-Corbyn. So I wonder if we're kind of shifting into a phase where, you know, politics is more in the foreground for a kind of slightly younger generation. Politics is more important than art and culture, and that might be a good thing. So that's, that's the kind of, I guess that's the kind of sense I've got over the course of my lifetime. And I'm interested to hear what other people think about that. All right, I can't put this off any longer, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, um, I guess I'm probably. I mean, I don't know, um, like, exactly how old either of these guys are, and I, and I realise this now sounds like I'm trying to shame them for being old, which I'm, I'm not. But, but what I'm trying to say is that I'm more I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm more of a 2000s child than a 90s one, basically. Um, but I also came up um, reading the music press, although it was quite a different music press by the time I got around to it. It was, I mean, I think there were still some of the same people. John Harris, uh, monthly Britpop column in Q or whatever, that was still there. Um, but 
it was kind of a much more uh, nostalgic thing. So 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 I'd hear about I'd I'd read about political uh, events of the past. You know, say like um, the Rock Against Racism shows in the late seventies, something like that. I'd read about that. Um, but I guess only because it was in that particular cultural context um, would be how they wrote about it. Um, but I mean, expanding on Alex's point um, about how politics now seems to be at the forefront rather than, um, rather than kind of needing to smuggle politics to people through um, culture. Um, I mean, I, I, I still, think there's a place for for that um but at the same time like um i mean joe kennedy wrote about this uh, who you'll be hearing from pretty <laughs> soon uh, in authentocrats um but there's not necessarily a link between you know having shall we say radical cultural preferences and having radical politics um i mean <laughs> i'm probably i'm probably just um doing Joe's thing for him so he can stay at the football thing if he wants <laughs> uh, but but uh, basically um, there, there's obviously this there's the centrist ad meme uh, which sums up many of the people who would have written about uh, music and culture uh, in the, in its the music press's 90s heyday if that that probably wasn't its actual heyday was it maybe no, uh, no. there we go um um Tarek's even older than yeah. <laughs> yeah but um yeah but but a lot a lot of these people are kind of uh you know very very anti-left or, or and so on um and like the, 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 there's this idea of the centrist dad as you know fusty uh, leather jacket wearing, uh, listening to fucking status quo or something, but really I I think um, the the point that Joe has made, which I agree with, is that uh, they're probably more likely to be wearing something a little bit more sophisticated and listening to Scott Walker. Um, and, and so I've found that, I mean, my personal tastes are probably a lot closer to a lot of the, the centrist dads, but that, that doesn't make them my ally. ally. Like, um, you know, there may be people who listen to music that I'm not interested in, um, who are great socialists who you might see on the picket line, um, whereas, you know, I might have a decent conversation with David Quantic um, or John Harris about, I don't know, the White Album or something, but at the same time, um, I don't necessarily, I don't, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, th I think that politics can more kind of do its own work now instead of, you know, having to kind of rifle through the lyrics to the Beatles revolution, be like, hang on, is there something radical in here? Like, no, there isn't, by the way. Spoiler: it's it's anti-radical. But like, um, but <laughs> but yeah, you know, I don't I don't think we. Um, I mean, one very last point. I mean, like, take the grime for Corbyn thing. Uh, a lot of those songs are like, they're not really agitprop. Like, some of them will talk about like the realities of the street, but it's political music without kind of you know, uh, basically just being a, a rewrite of, 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 um, of the red flag and it was able to be put into a political context without being a kind of agitprop thing where they mention Jeremy Corbyn's name every two lines. Um, 
So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 th I think that, you know, politics can speak for itself. I'm not sure I can, though, because I'm very tired, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, but thank you. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I think the question about the relationship between aesthetics and politics is really interesting because I think about my teenage years and I think a lot of the time I was kind of drawn to things that were more left politically than I was at the time and I think there's something kind of interesting there about what it is that we're attracted to in culture. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about what's going on in the present uh, and to ask the panellists what um, they see as the kind of current challenges for left cultural production um, and just to throw out an extra bit to the question that I didn't ask you in advance because it struck me as kind of interesting while you were talking. How do you see your own relationship to that as people who are a lot of the time commenting on left culture which is or commenting on culture which is also a kind of form of cultural production? So what are the current challenges and how do you see your own role within that? Should I stand up again? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of challenges, I mean, I guess the first thing to say, and this, this probably won't come as any surprise, um, to anyone is that over the past 30 years we've lost a lot of the things that made it possible, um, either easy or at least possible, to um, exist as an independent, autonomous uh, working class artist, as someone who um, could spend more time on making music or writing or art um, than they did on wage labour. Um, that's been more or less comprehensively dismantled at the moment. In the 60s and 70s, even even the 80s, to um, to some extent, it was possible to access um, forms of state support. Um, it was possible, particularly in London, to live cheaply, whether that was um, through squats or just through low rents, and also through shared um, recording spaces and independent performance uh, spaces. Um, that's completely gone at the moment. Um, if you look at, um, I guess, what's called the cultural industries as well, it's a similar story there. It's very difficult as someone without independent wealth, without family wealth and connections, to get a career in the media, in politics, in publishing, in arts, um, without having wealth behind you that can support you through um, periods of precarity, which you often need in order to land a career, um, and through unpaid internships, which are often the way that you get into um, media, politics. And culture, as you may uh, have been able to work out, I'm speaking from lived experience. Um, here, I am someone who doesn't have um, family wealth or connections um, behind me. My uh, my parents um, unaccountably failed to make connections at the VEC or <laughs> anything like that. So, um, yeah, if, if you don't if you don't have that um, that pre-existing wealth to sort of propel you through a very precarious early career, then it's very difficult for you to get anywhere. Um, a fairly, um, well, a, a more recent, but I think perhaps a more um, damaging factor has just been austerity um, in itself, which I think is, um, has in part, whether um, deliberate or, um, or accidental, has been an attack on the cultural fabric of, um, of little communities. I'm thinking very particularly of things like library closures. Um, when I was growing up, again, this was pre-internet, but the library was um, where I got everything. You know, every, everything that I guess you might know be getting from the internet. Um, history, philosophy, theory, um, everything else that, that, was, that was going on in the world, um, I got from the library. So losing that is hugely damaging. Um, I'm thinking of things like uh, gentrification and um, rent outstripping um, what people can afford in um, Cardiff, which I know a bit about. Um, Cardiff Council is one that relies a lot on sort of um, vacuous 
cultural boosterism. Um, it's very proud of the. Um, do you remember Cool Camry? This is 20 years ago. No? Okay. Um, Welsh music was really cool for about uh, four months. <laughs> um, and Cardiff Council still kind of relies on that. It's like, all, you know, we've, we've got brilliant, um, brilliant music scene and a vibrant, uh, vibrant club scene. On the one hand, it's promoting its city based on that. On the other hand, um, it is destroying the material basis of those sites of cultural production. It is pricing out um, independent music shops, um, clubs, and venues for live music. Um, and some of that is a deliberate choice. Some of it is uh, what they say is a necessity based on austerity. Um, so that's a more recent thing that I think is a huge challenge. And what do we, how do we respond to that? Do we campaign against austerity? Do we do we ask the council to um, to set a cuts budget as uh, local council did in the 80s, um, or do we try to produce our own alternatives to that? Our own sort of alternative um, DIY spaces. Um, spaces for recording and performance or just spaces for um, for community discussion for getting together like something like this yeah I mean again I completely agree with Rian. Um yeah I mean I, th I think these are the sort of Rian again has just sort of summarized the sort of uh, you know the, the kind of basic material context for I guess this this sort of shift that I um, you might want to schematize, you know, away from the aesthetic and towards perhaps, you know, the ethical or the, the political. I think, you know, particularly a younger generation is, is very wise to this fact that, um, you know, it's very difficult to produce culture. We don't have the time, uh, we don't have the material resources, uh, you know, the, the kind of dull culture that really underpinned the late 20th century counterculture is, is gone. Obviously, the grant culture that came along with being a student in the late 20th century, you know, this is what produced the sort of flowering of. Uh, you know, music in particular in the late 20th century uh, and, you know, those material conditions in that, I guess, a kind of vulgar Marxist sense are, um, are no longer there. Um, and I think people are wise to that and people uh, realise that, if, you know, if you're going to get, you know, a, a new wave of counterculture, you have to change the, the, the politics first, you have to change the material conditions. I mean, I, again, you know, my own, my own experience is just of, of thinking that, you know, the, the, the kind of old ways of doing things, you know, in, in, in sort of music journalism uh, and, and culture are, are kind of exhausted and they're not going to be renewed without a, a major overhaul of the material basis of society, um, which is obviously where socialism comes in. <laughs> um, so, like, I mean, I guess, I, I, I think these guys, have, they've talked very well about like the, the the material conditions in society that uh, that make cultural production so hard. Um, so I guess I'm going to come in with something more solipsistic and just talk about making culture. Um, but it is quite difficult. Like <laughs> I, d I, I imagine a lot of people here um, make things, be it like you you. Uh, record music or maybe there's someone else with a podcast here or someone who paints or whatever but it it really does take time i mean like i'd like to release an episode of a podcast every week but um it generally takes a few nights of just kind of solid editing to get it together so i can imagine people you know their time filled with 
um, more things than I have because um, I mean I've graduated from my master's degree fairly recently and for, for various reasons um, I'm currently just living at home with my parents and not really doing anything um, but somebody who's not in uh, such a fortunate position as that um, who, who the majority of their time is is uh, spent with going to work and they don't have somewhere like their parents where they've got a study where they can kind of go go and seclude themselves off and make the stuff um, yeah like I mean it, it, it's incredibly difficult so so you know what what, what I, I feel bad is that um, you know it as a as a, effectively a bourgeois socialist um, I feel like there's probably something out there which would be funnier than real politic, have better <laughs> better politics than real politic, more incisive analysis, but the person who would make that just hasn't got the time to make it. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think whose line is it, I think it's Neil Young's line that he says Crazy Horse are the third best garage band in the world, the second are the Rolling Stones and the first are some band playing in a garage somewhere who you've never ever heard of. Um, uh, and, and, you know, if there was ever a good reason to move towards a socialist society, it's so that, you know, uh, do encourage from Jeremy, to, to uh, paraphrase Helen Lewis, it's so that the wonderful things that are inside everybody can... Uh, reveal themselves and enrich society and if that sounds a bit kind of hippie-ish it's because to go back to the previous question that's kind of where the foundation of my politics comes from from Neil Young and the lads um, anyway I, I've run out of steam again cheers <laughs> so we now have our fourth panelist Joe. Joe, do you want to catch us up on what role culture played in your political formation and then also talk about what you think the current challenges for left cultural production are. Oh, right, yeah, easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Little ones. Uh, Joe, I, I dropped some authenticrat spoilers, I'm, I'm sorry. That's all right, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm always talking about that, but I was just talking about my last one. I, I was just saying downstairs in the, uh, in the football panel that um, one of the ways in which I first encountered a lot of the culture that is important to me now was via reading football fanzines. And I think from kind of parachuting in while I was talking, he was talking about the, um, the counterculture of a very specific period of kind of post-war time. Football fanzines are one of those kind of hangovers of the post-war consensus that go on into, um, into sort of Thatcherite Britain, I think. And I was reading football fanzines from the early 90s onwards. I started reading them when I was about 10. It was more interesting than the official programme at Darlington. Anything was getting me more interesting than that. Um, and uh, in the fanzine they used to write about the fall and Half Man Half Biscuit and they used to write about Joy Division and Samuel Beckett and Kafka and all of these things that you think I'm standing in a football ground reading about all of this good stuff that I'm interested in that I never hear about at school because when I'm at school and they teach me poetry they only, I don't know, they teach me something that felt like it was being written specifically for GCSE students um, and then uh, lo and behold I, I 
29 years later and I am an English lecturer always trying to teach things that don't get taught to GCSE students because I feel that things get taught to GCSE students are usually quite boring. Um, uh, culture played a role in my politicisation in that sense. Well, in a funny way because I, I think... Um, uh, Jack talked about having a bourgeois take. I think I have an idealist take on culture. I think, or I'm always trying to kind of balance my idealist and materialist takes on culture, and then we'll get in an argument about why I think Marx is an, an idealist on some level anyway. Um, but I, my, my sense growing up was that what books gave you, and let's use books as a kind of metonym or, or a, a kind of little representation of culture in general. Um, what books gave you, and this is a bit Morrissey, yes, kind of old Morrissey, not bad Morrissey, but, uh, <laughs> uh, they gave you a sort of way out of, uh, an experience of time and space that you often didn't get elsewhere. They did, they, were sitting at home reading um, and being interested in the things, you know, <laughs> to sound really badly kind of Harry Potterish, the world's created by other people, um, was a, a kind of space to think outside of, of everything else and um, what I, I think I gradually came to, to think as I became more and more solipsistic through my teens and going on towards university um, and reading more and more solipsistic modernist literature was that it would be good if everyone was having this time to think um, the kind of mental space or temporal space that, uh, that I felt was being created was something that could only really be fully provided in the way that Jack says by a more kind of obviously equitable um, form of politics or economy. Political economy would probably be a, a better way of putting that, wouldn't it? Um, and I don't think I've ever really kind of lost that idea on some level. I, I, I have a, a semi-resistance to um, culture which is trying to teach you something or is trying to programmatically kind of lead you in a particular direction and I always want my... Um, my socialism to be somehow reconcilable with reading Virginia Woolf or uh, T.S. Eliot or somebody like that. I've never been a big, a particularly big reader of, reader of Brecht, for example. Um, so, what I guess I'm saying is that, that there are kind of different and an ang different angles of politicisation via culture. Um, the current obstacles to cultural production. Um, well, I think you have this the kind of obvious material argument that we live in a society which just doesn't facilitate those things. There are really kind of obvious ways, or things that should seem obvious but don't, to do with, I suppose, the kind of current welfare system, to do with the current educational system, to do with tuition fees, this kind of thing, lack of student grants and so on. All of these things kind of obviously limit culture. We're also, I mean... There's also, I suppose, the slightly more controversial argument, which I'll probably get in trouble for saying, that a lot of the popular culture which we're sub subjected to, and I do say subjected to and, and kind of mean it, is kind of stultifying as well. I mean, there's so much boring stuff around, but it, kind of aggressively boring. There's so much noise you have to cut through if you want to produce or be involved in culture in any way. You're, you're often producing culture so that it can be kind of transformed via the machinations of the Guardian or the New Statesman into a water cooler discussion. Uh, it often doesn't seem to be for its own right. It feels like what you're doing is essentially producing stimulus for kind of content journalism, um, really. And I think that we, yeah, I mean, I, I think I might 
leave it on that note before I, I get too into my <laughs> um, modern popular culture is actually thoroughly depressing um, spiel. I think I might let someone argue with me about that to be honest. <laughs> Alright, so we have one last question for the panel before we open up the floor for questions. And so for this last question, I would like you to travel with me on a journey into the future. The revolution has arrived, capitalism has been overthrown, uh, insert whatever your own particular variation on utopia is at this point. Um, and what does culture look like after the revolution? It's me again. <laughs> um, to be honest, I think uh, the roles that culture fulfills in terms of entertainment, escapism, personal expression, storytelling, etc., are things that we're still going to need or still have a desire for, um, even after the collapse of capitalism. So I think culture will endure, its forms may change, as material circumstances change, but um, I think what one, um, one big thing is we might have more free time in which to both consume culture um, and produce it. A, a main feature of um, both sort of utopian and scientific um, ideas of what post-capitalist society will look like uh, is either we abolish work totally or we institute a better work-life balance. Um, but in any case, uh, leisure time is increased and free time is increased, so we have more time to concentrate both on hobbies and on creative expression and creative consumption. Um, so ev everyone seems determined that there'll be, um, there'll be poetry workshops, as soon as, um, <laughs> which I'm all for, um, just to be clear. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, <coughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, if we're thinking in really, really ideal terms, after the revolution, um, you know, uh, the aesthetic is disburdened of its, uh, you know, this need to be political, surely. I mean, if the political, if we're thinking in these ideal terms, then if the political problem's been solved, then art is free to give what it is essentially, which is, you know, it gives human beings an experience of joy. Uh, so I think, you know, the aesthetic is an experience of joy, it's an experience of uh, escapism, it's an experience of, of pleasure, of self-expression. Uh, you know, I agree with everything uh, the other panel panellists have said about that. Um, so I think, yeah, that would be, uh, after the revolution, art is freed of politics and it can be purely joy. Yeah, I mean, I was... Um more or less going to say exactly that, but probably with more umming and ahhing. Um, like, um, no, I mean, I guess I could just, just to expand on it briefly, I, I, I could again take a slightly more solipsistic direction, but um, like, for, for a while, I think a lot of it was because I was so focused on politics, but I've always played music and I, I, I lost interest and couldn't write songs anymore. And partly it was a personal thing. And I think part of it was just thinking in this kind of relentlessly prosaic way from just following uh, whatever shitbag stuff the Parliamentary Labour Party were doing uh, on any given day. And that, you know, that consumes you after a while. Um, so re recently I've been getting back into writing stuff that it's just songs and it's not agitprop but it feels like my politics is still there. So again, going back to what I said about um, the, the, how p politically potent the grime movement was uh, during the last election and, and is in general, it, it, it would be great to see you know political and socialist art that isn't necessarily explicitly about politics. 
And again, I think that's really just a reiteration of, of the point Alex made. This, again, might be slightly contrarian, but I um, maybe I do switch to a kind of materialism now because I, I struggle to imagine what art looks like after some nominal revolution because, in a, in a good way, hopefully everything will be so different then that we can't even imagine the conditions of production of art. Then I suppose I, I look, look to that potential horizon and, and say, well, then art will be like the kind of art I like, but of course all that often has already been done. And I think, well, are people going to be, will there be any instance for abstract expressionist painting or, uh, or Proust or, um, or kind of sort of late modernist poetry in that future because it will already have emerged under more oppressive or repressive conditions. Um, so I, yeah, I, I'm going to have to honestly say I just do not know. But yeah, I hope everyone has more time for doing good things, whatever they may be, however simplistic that might sound. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Can we have a round of applause for... to open up the space now for some kind of questions uh, to get you probing uh, what our panellists kind of think in terms of a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't even necessarily thought about. Um, so I will take one question at a time. Um, if you put your hands up and we'll start um, at the back. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is probably mostly aimed at uh, Jack, but anyone. Um, it's, it's genuine as well. <laughs> um, what do you think it means, like, have a role in sort of shaping where politics is going because it gets people engaged in a different way like and not memes are made by like corporate corporate accounts are terrible but like genuinely it's like an organic thing like Mike Gapes and Milk <laughs> <laughs> like Mike Gapes and Milk memes and stuff <laughs> but like they, they have a role surely in, in yeah. I, I'm, yeah absolutely yeah. they have a role I mean I'd be reluctant to overstate their political significance like be the guy boasting around yeah you know i brought about a revolution by posting shit about this has-been backbench mp loving milk like uh yeah no i mean I, I i don't think it's too potent but i think i think these things can be galvanizing uh i mean uh, in, in in the introduction um marika mentioned my tim farron play i wrote and that came from just a conscious strategy among myself and I suppose fellow Twitter shit posters, some of whom you might not think of as shit posters, you might think of them as very credible and serious people. Um, Mr. Seamus Milne, for example. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, j just to basically just really hammer home the Tim Farron gay frog stuff during the last election. Because, you know, the Lib Dems were trying to do the with a real opposition thing. And it's like, hold on a second. You're run by a guy who thinks that gay sex is a sin. And, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know how much credit we can take for this. But the media did start asking him about that in just about every interview. So, um, so, so I, I mean, I think that there's an element of... Um, kind of message discipline to, to, to memes, as in they, they do the same way as, uh, as in a series of Labour press releases, you'll get the same line, what, what, what's uh, an offshore tax haven off the coast of Europe, that appeared in about a hundred of them after, uh, after Brexit, like, um, and, and 
I mean, maybe that's not the best line, but just as a broad example, if you repeat it enough, it will stick in people's minds. I think there's something similar about milk and gay frogs. Do any of your other panellists have kind of thoughts or feelings about memes and their potential? I'm far too ill to know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, mostly agree. Should I stand? <laughs> mostly agree. I'd be reluctant to um, to understate the importance of memes in some cases, to be honest. I mean, particularly given um, all the, uh, what should we call it, online discourse around Corbynism and particularly the run up to um, the 2017 general election, growing for Corbyn, especially, like the whole, um, the, the sort of gleeful incongruousness of marrying, like the, the, the image of Corbyn, who's a white bearded elderly. Uh, veteran socialist, but very, un very un-edgy, you know, um, with the image that people had of grime at that point, J just the, the putting of them together, which is um, often what you need, it's, it's, the, it's the, um, the dialectic that, that you need to get an excellent meme. Um, that, that was perfect, I, mean, I, I don't think there's anything um, before or since that has, <laughs> has measured up the picture of Corbyn in, in the sort of uh, white fur floor-length coat getting out of a limousine. <laughs> I don't know, is that fully automated luxury communism? I don't know. Um, I, I, memes are great though and should be used, uh, should be used uh, as much if not more than they have been. Thank you. We had a question just over here. Oh, uh, oh I was going to say, has anyone ever heard of Jack Fresco, the Venus Project? Yeah, I have. I'm working towards a resource-based economy, doing away with the monetary system. I wonder what you thought about that. It's a new one on me, but I'll... It's doing away with the monetary system altogether because the monetary system is designed to create division within society. And that's why we're all in this mess. So we can do away with it altogether and do everything for free without the, one, without the need for green for money. And I think universal basic income could be something that could get us towards that and free people up to to do other things, be more creative. That's all. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just kind of like pace the panel a little bit and see what's up, but mainly argue your point that like modern culture is depressing or <laughs> maybe it is it something that's come from like you know I was born in 97 so it says a lot but like oh I find that with the internet <laughs> I think well not that you guys oh god that's you'll be in this position at some point in 10 years modern culture in many ways is just very different from what it was and that is good in some respects and it is bad in others like you, you have to say that yeah some cultures are definitely more important I would I would pose that things like the internet, for example, there has been a degree of like socialisation when it comes yeah, to yeah. fewer barriers, and as a result, I, I would argue that it's not. Important. Yeah, that was a clearly provocative statement. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what I actually think. I mean, I could expand. It's not the internet that I think that is boring. In in one way. With all caveats applied, the internet is great. It means that you can encounter all kinds of things, either that are being made presently or 
uh, from the last uh, 4,000 years of human cultural production that you wouldn't otherwise know about. I spend far too much time on the internet. You know, it's, um, it, and it is, is a, I think, a broadly good thing. And in fact, one of the worst kind of bits of, I suppose, what I call centrist moaning is this idea that the internet is to blame for all of our current ills. I mean, that's obviously nonsense. I do, however, think that we have come, maybe coming out the other side of it, but we have recently experienced a period, particularly in my specific area of culture, which would be kind of a literary studies of the novel or something, where actually it has been really banal. Let's go and walk into Waterstones, we'll walk around, what we'll have here, another novel by Ian McEwan about a big theme. Hooray, what is this? Like, robot sex, brilliant. 500, 500 books that are called, like, Fox. A journey into the heart of England's soul. Like, well, like, so there is a lot of very boring stuff around at the moment. Yeah, if there is interesting stuff, it is probably coming up from below, and I, I don't deny the existence of that. But it was a, a provocative remark. <laughs> um, anyone else? Anyone else have any thoughts on that they want to come back with? There's just so much stuff. I think I think yeah. that's the thing. I think the majority of it probably is bad, but at the same time, there's probably more good stuff than there ever was before. Uh, and it's a less unified culture. We're not we're not you know all watching the same three channels on TV or or, or whatever. It's much more um, atomized. But I but I think there, there there's still a bit of a kind of like if you are a certain type of person like again i keep i'm using music as an example for everything um but like somebody who's like uh you know a bit of a chin stroking muso like 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 myself even um has probably heard that the same album has come out as another chin stroking muso they've both seen the pitchfork review page so there's still an element of that but it's rather than a broader counterculture it seems to be you know almost designed into subcultures and then nobody necessarily particularly identifies with one of those subcultures as their as their sole thing like the person who is enjoying the latest indie rock record review in pitchfork uh is now probably also like an ariana grande fan <laughs> so um uh, that, that's something i meant to mention briefly in the first thing is that uh you know i i no longer like see uh i think i actually did mention this now coming to think of it but ra radical um you know something that's ra radical formally as a piece of culture is not necessarily radically radical politically and you're not necessarily a worse person for your preferences leaning or a worse <laughs> radical for your preferences leaning more towards the uh less um you know nominally highbrow side of things I just add a qualification to what I said and to what you said already, Jeff, which is you, you mentioned the volume of stuff, which mm. is, you know, it is it's quite easy to feel overwhelmed by how much culture there is now. But another, one of the things, another thing I point out as being part of what I call the boring is is that you cannot walk down the street without seeing a billboard for another box set. Box set, box set, box set. Stay in your house, don't talk to people, watch 60 episodes of the, the latest box set. That's a kind of de-socialising experience as far as I'm concerned. Okay, you know, I can have a conversation with people about Game of Thrones or whatever, but it's not just Game of Thrones, is it? There's five new ones every week. And again, I find that quite suffocating, I think. The opposite of time producing, almost. Anyone else want to add anything? 
Um, I'm going to try and very quickly cram three, three, two questions and one very short statement in. So that is like what, the worst practice. Ever. Question one, uh, why do you think art is about joy? Um, like, where does that assumption come from? Question two is, no one has mentioned, like, visual art, dance, theatre, and you wrote a play. Um, like, <laughs> it was an audio play, to why, be fair. Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? And uh, what role do those things have? Um, and the third thing is, um, this is not a sort of qualitative statement, but um, arts council funding was at its proportional highest during the Blair years, um, both per capita and per artist. Well, you know what Noel Gallagher says, Tony Blair, he's the man. <laughs> right? Uh, can somebody come in with a serious comment? <laughs> um, I mean, well, just the, the, the response to the, the question about why I think art is joy, I mean, that's based on my experience. It's, it's, it's you know, I guess a, a problem with a kind of uh, discussion like this is, we talk, you know, culture is an incredibly broad term, you know, even narrowing down that to art and the aesthetic, you're talking about multiple different art forms, etc, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think primarily when art isn't being political, when it's not operating in, on that level, for me, it seems to be about some form of release, uh, euphoria, um, fascination, uh, escapism, expression, help me out here, I don't know. <laughs> What other people Catharsis. think? Catharsis, yeah. yeah. Um, so that would, that would be absorption, yeah. Transcendence. All of, yeah. <laughs> all, of, all of the above. So that's, I guess that would be my response to that. I'm simply not an aficionado of visual arts or, uh, let's say, ballet or opera uh, in the way that I am um, of music. Um, so that's why I didn't mention them. But that doesn't mean that I exclude them from the, um, the sphere of culture. Um, I think that they, uh, yeah, are valid, useful, and can also be radical. Theatre, especially, um, which I do like, and there's there's been um, a fair amount of like um, radical theatre, often like based in little communities, um, that I've seen over the past couple of years. So yeah, no no argument there. I think with visual arts, for me, it, it's something I take enormous pleasure in, but in a totally kind of unknowing way almost. But it does seem to be almost the model of what I mean by this kind of idea of absorption and like the good, the, the pleasurable feeling of time, of time being lost doing something nice, you know, I'd like, and, and may, you know, I hope it's a form of generosity of wanting everyone to be able to experience that at that time, and where I experience it most powerfully is probably in a gallery looking at, a, as I say, a kind of abstract expressionism, impressionist painting, um, Anything a little bit melty. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's my, my answer there. Um, I, I guess to like very like briefly chip in because like I, I you know I do have an interest in the visual arts. Um, but like, wait, what was the question about the visual arts? Well, I just wondered I why no one like I was interested to know why music was just overwhelmingly. I'd, other than with you and kind of literature, was overwhelmingly the predominant. Uh, I'm, I'm personally very <clears throat> fickle in my cultural interests, uh, and uh, I follow the muse, so to speak. So a couple of months ago, if I was sitting up here, I would have been talking about film, 
as it was, I watched too many films for a few months and, and, and burnt myself out, and now I'm listening to loads of albums. So that's just my frame of reference at the moment. We do talk about film on, on my podcast quite a lot, and we've, we've, we've done a lot of reviews, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I'm not the only one on this panel as well. I mean, I talked a little bit about Authentocrats earlier, but Joe has some good stuff about, uh, like, grainy, hard-bollocked blockbuster movies uh, in in there, like the how how the Dark Knight is like the authentocratic Batman, uh, Batman for the post 9/11 age, and and so on, um, and 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 you know there there's obviously a lot to chew on uh, in uh, visual art. I think part of it is, I mean, at least with film, is that there are a lot, there are radical filmmakers, but they're generally generally working on a very small scale, and it's quite hard to find a mainstream uh, film that is genuinely radical simply because of how much money it takes to make a film. Uh, I mean, you get you get a thing now. Um, where if a film even kind of alludes to politics, it's described as a kind of, you know, searing riposte of the Trump era. Like, uh, Richard Linklater made this sappy, sentimental film called Last Flag Flying, which is a sort of uh, belated, 40-year-later sequel to Hal Ashby's brilliant 1970s film The Last Detail. Uh, and it's just this kind of sappy, saccharine, sentimental film about some troops, like, taking a body to be buried or something um but the review it's got no satirical edge but the reviews are glowing presumably because they like wave an american flag and someone looks sad in front of it so you can be like (laughs) what happened to our great country uh so so i mean i i I think in in film at least there's there is there's a culture of people making things out to be much more uh, radical than than they actually are um but i for like the millionth time, I'm just going to trail off my answer here and say I don't really know where I'm going with this. Okay, so we've got uh, another question here. Hey, um, so just hearing some of the panellists, you've talked very much about like fanzines and what seems to be like DIY and very accessible culture which has led you into politics. Um, I'm associated with a, a cultural institution. Do you find that cultural institutions are reflective of the communities that you live in? And do you think that those institutions actually are sort of like a kind of a, a sort of a place to facilitate and communicate politics to the community? So that they actually have it's like it, it provides them with information and it also like engages them and empowers them to form local politics. So basically, are our cultural institutions relevant to the communities that they're based in? They should be. <laughs> 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 yeah, sorry, I hold an opinion, which is kind of what I'm asking the question, just to see what you feel. Well, I, I think they, local, local cultural institutions, assuming you talk about kind of galleries, museums, yeah. uh, places like FE colleges as well, I believe, where people might, might do performance stuff or learn to paint. Yeah, so I mean, like you've talked about kind of community spaces that are yeah. very accessible. How, like, you know, gen- like a gentr- gentrification of an area means that those kind of community spaces are lost. And so, I suppose some of our culture is a little bit more directed to institutions. But actually, are there kind of, I suppose, like class barriers and culture barriers to people accessing that culture? Well, I think it's uh, absolutely imperative on any kind of new thing that's being opened up that it has to. Kind of fundamentally and not just superficially engage with the area that it's in 
Um, and, but, but kind of not in a didactic way, not in a way that's, you know, it, I don't think it can be political in, in, the, the, in the kind of rudimentary sense of this is who you should vote for. But it should be a space where people get to experience themselves as a community. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, institutions, I, I can remember actually speaking on a panel with Joe Kennedy five, six. six, maybe even six years ago now. Yeah, uh, we are very, very old men, as, as we, we, we keep uh, emphasising. Um, but um, yeah, on this panel, you know, I was, I was sort of, it was a panel about uh, post-war modernism, um, and I was sort of talking about the 60s kind of modernist poetry scene, and saying that that was really underpinned by this kind of social democratic infrastructure, this kind of institutional culture that, um, you know, to some extent enabled this kind of flourishing of artists, you know, we talked about this culture of, you know, public funding, etc, etc. I can remember, you know, saying in this panel, you know, I love institutions, institutions are great. Then what happened is I got a job in a university. <laughs> um, and my opinion of institutions has uh, deteriorated, I think it would be fair to say. Um, I mean, in, in, institutions can be good. I think when institutional control is, is very tight over artists, uh, they can end up kind of stifling art, producing very boring art. Um, I think, you know, I think, for example, the, the contemporary poetry scene mostly is is quite stifled because it's very institutionalized. It's very kind of oriented around prize culture and you know poets who uh, you know have lectureships and produce collections of poetry for the uh, research exercise framework. This kind of institutional uh, thing that happens every few years. Um, nevertheless, I think you know I, I think institutions are good if they delegate a, a very high level of autonomy to the artist, uh, you know, essentially just kind of giving artists money, time, etc, etc, and letting them get on with it. Um, so I'm a sort of uh, libertarian to, to that extent, <laughs> a libertarian within a kind of socialist framework, obviously. Okay, uh, so we've got a question at front and then we'll come to you. Am I missing anyone at the back? Yeah, I've got sort of strategic problem I want, I want you to answer or solve for me. Uh, so, like, I think we're in a sort of catch-22 situation with, with culture, and particularly sort of counterculture. In that, like, and and when, you, when you started, Alex, you were saying, whereas people used to come to politics through culture, perhaps politics is at the big front, and that may or may not be a good thing, I find it really hard to imagine a really transformative political moment without something that looks a little bit like a counterculture. If you look at our, our present moment, you know, electoral politics is very important. All of the pressure on politics is to look at you know, what is the existing sense of what is possible to do. And you have to have some pressure, which is looking the other way and thinking about, well, you know, what, what new can we do, basically? You can't really think of anything that can do that apart from like, a mass counterculture, do you know what I mean? But the problem we've already established is that the material conditions from which the, sort of, the, the post-war, perhaps like from the 60s onwards, Counterculture developed. They have just been eliminated. Do you know what I mean? That's the catch twenty-two. <laughs> How do we bridge this this problem? You know, this gap between what needs to exist in order to make a truly transformative moment and the situation we're in now. I actually haven't got an answer. Do I know if our panelists have an answer? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let someone else go first. Um, I guess I would. This isn't really an answer, but I'm, I'm not sure. This is much of a of a conundrum as that. I mean, I, I spent uh, about 20 years being really frustrated that people were, as, um, as Jack mentioned a while ago, sort of sublimating um, 
the uh, the impetus for political change through culture. So you had to sort of look at look at um, Batman or, or the new Beyonce video or something and try and posit that as a challenge to capitalist realism. Whereas surely you could say you know socialism is a challenge to capitalist realism, but um, you seem to have to jump through various cultural studies hoops in order to um, to be political. And there there are reasons for that. Capitalist realism being one, and the fact that the left uh, within academia and within politics have been on the back foot and have been retreating and exhausted um, for about 20 years. But, you know, as someone who's always been a socialist and never felt the need to sublimate it through anything, um, I found that quite frustrating. Um, so it's been a huge relief to see something like the Corbyn surge and see people say, oh no, it's all right to, to have um, an overt and apologetic belief in uh, left populism and we don't have to do sort of cultural studies entryism in order to get th those ideas into the mainstream. So I, I, I understand. I, I'd really like it if culture and politics, counterculture and politics, were working in tandem. But I don't think they need to. I'm happy to just sort of go along with the politics-led moment. I think that you know, I probably, probably agree with, with most of that. I mean, and, and just maybe as a supplement rather than a contradiction to it. I feel like kind of important point that. Um, one can make about hegemony is that hegemony is never complete, it's always got cracks in it. And you can feel the cracks opening at the moment, partly because of the global moment, but partly because there was so much boring stuff produced for so long. I feel like it's not necessarily a sublimation to say that two things can be happening at once and are related to each other yeah. or, some, or something like that. And, and, I, and so to go back to my sort of Ian McEwen argument, is look at all of these figures who felt like kind of a on indomitable cultural gods in the 1990s, the early noughties, the, the, the kind of peak of boredom around, you know, between 2000, 2005, 2006, something like that. Um, these people never seemed like they'd be challenged. Every year the Booker Prize would be between Julian Barnes and Ian McEwan or something like that. And, and now it's not the case. These people are really on the back foot. You can tell by how bad the culture they're producing is, how rushed <laughs> it is, and how unconsidered it is, and how, how defensive it is, how... Um, that you know, ev every kind of mainstream '90s novelist currently feels the need to write some terrible allegory about trigger warnings or something like that because they feel so scared of, of a change which is obviously there but hasn't been fully articulated yet. But I, I think I agree with Rian. It's like partly the art articulation of political change is in politics, um, and that is kind of happening in a kind of productive conversation with with um, culture rather than in a specifically entryistic way. It's, it's quite hard to, to map, I think. Um, Want to contribute on that? Or? It's just a sort of brief semantic point, I guess. You know, counterculture can mean, again, can mean lots of different things. You know, when we say counterculture, do we mean a kind of political culture? You know, people getting together and talking about politics, as in the case of Southampton Transformed, or do we mean a sp specifically, you know, an aesthetic culture that is, you know, in some ways radical. Um, so I don't know if that was. I don't know quite what you know. I mean, I, I'm mean. much more, much more of an idea of like in my head. It's like post-war period from the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s, where young working-class kids and lower-middle-class kids basically had control of the direction of culture, mm -hmm. and so and that, that led to a mass experimentation in like yeah. different ways of living. You know, sure. these fucking 70,000 squatted homes in London. In London in the early 80s, which is a bedrock for I guess, as with a lot of things, it was kind of quickly uh, that, that 
the the ideas of that generation of young people was quickly commodified and kind of the raw edges were sanded off uh, and uh, the business found ways to uh, make a lot of money off it um so you know like he's one of those guys who was at one point a kind of cultural giant he's now just a reactionary prick but like you know John Lydon probably had had quite a good uh, good idea by moving. Did one punk album, then was like, you know, there's a lot of great punk bands, but in terms of that particular cultural moment, he was probably right to go. Ah, people have worked out how to sell this now. I'm going to immediately form a post-punk band one year after that. No, it's like two years. But yeah, immediately after the previous album, he went straight from Nevermind the Bollocks to the first Pill album, um, and. Uh, and I, I think you know that's a, that's a kind of very indicative reaction, and the same happened with the '60s. You know, uh, I mean, to cite my my man Neil Young, he's he's got a song called "Walk Like a Giant," which uh, which he wrote in 2012. It's on his Psychedelic Pill album, which is a very nostalgic record, um, and it's just all about him and how him and his friends said they were going to change the world, and then they didn't. So, so from that period, like the music is great, the films from Hollywood in the nineteen seventies are great, uh, the films from France in that era are mostly great, you know. But um, from from around the nineteen sixty eight protests, but although culture and politics did dovetail in those times, uh, the cultural impact. I think was gradually shorn of its politics. So there, there's a, I guess, I, th I think we have got that in terms of like the protest and stuff, there are equivalents to, to what was going on back then. Um, but yeah, it's not intertwined with the culture in the same way. And um, as much as I quite like it to be. Um, yeah. I think another thing is that there's a certain sense in which there's a myth of the counterculture which is restrictive of the present as well but mm. not only with with punk so many of the people who are writing in newspapers now saying the kind of corbyn moment is it's not authentic it's just it's just uh, hipsters or something like that. so many of those people come out of a kind of late 70s early 80s punk background and now you're being absorbed into that kind of reaction to communism you're also getting people coming out of the late 80s early 90s rave background as well you know the, these were our real radical moments punk and rave and nothing radical can ever happen after those things ever again um, so, well, I, I think on one hand there is a kind of a lack of what's discernibly a counterculture because it hasn't had that moment of kind of shooting through fully. We need to be cautious about kind of lamenting it too much. Just to sort of really briefly, I think we saw that really clearly with um, there were about five years where there were sort of loads of broadsheet columns, uh, mostly by Sandra Stiles, like lamenting the death of the protest song. Mm. <laughs> the that we'll, we'll never have um, four white men with guitars singing about um, the socioeconomic conditions ever again. So how can we have a meaningful counterculture and how can we have um, <laughs> political change? Which meant that they totally missed things like the student protests in 2010 yeah. where they were sort of repurposing lethal bizzle um, and all, all that, that kind of thing. So yeah, you have to be, so things can, um, countercultural forms will change depending on material circumstances and on, on history, I think. Yeah, I think there have been about three good protest songs in the history of music. Ohio! I mean, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> even, if, even if your music does look like protest songs, The Guardian still doesn't recognise mm. it. Grace Petrie has a song called I Wish The Guardian Knew I Existed. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah. Uh, we had a question over here. Yeah, it's kind of a question, kind of a personal experience that I wanted to share. Um, yeah, I just wanted to put it out there, the question of um, what dark is like if you were in a social world. So, um, and it was a question that was posed to my mum back in the 80s when she was part of the socialist organiser. It was something that they were thinking about as comrades, something they were discussing. One of my mum's comrades was saying, well, you know, there won't be room for art anymore because art is something that is desirable, it's, it's limited. The minute you manufacture it, the minute you make it available to everyone like you would in a socialist society, it would no longer have its desirability like a Picasso or a Van Gogh would have. So um, there would be no need for art in a, in a socialist society. It would no longer be you know, needed. A bit like leaders and fighters would no longer be needed because we would be working as a collective and uh, socialist. And, I talked about with my mum, you know, later on, you know, when we, she, she said to me, well, what about this, you know, would there be room for artists, would there be? And, you know, what I said to her is that art would be different, art would be more about personalised art, so it would be more about my friend has created something for me, so it has meaning to me, there's, there's still going to be room for, but we're not going to celebrate it the same way where, it, where it's going to be. You know, individualistic is something that we're going to want to aspire to and desire for that we're not never going to be able to attain or reach. It's going to be more about my brother or my sister made this for me, it's got meaning to me. And yeah, I just wondered what other people thought about what art actually looked like in the social society because a lot of what we're talking about is about, um, you know, moving towards rebellion and, you know, culture, you know, counterculture about how you, you know, what, what is actually art going to be like in a in a socialist world, is it going to exist even? Is it going to be rude? Is it going to be... So one of the uh, the last question that we asked uh, the panel to respond yeah, to directly was um, <laughs> about what would uh, kind of culture look like uh, in a post-revolutionary utopia. I mean, I wonder whether you have any kind of thoughts on particularly art and about how perhaps we would value art or what the value of art would be in those circumstances. I, th I think people would still want to share it with with a, a wider audience rather than just their friend. I mean, I... I but would I, it be right? Would it be right to, to, to launch something and say, this is important because of this rather than this being important? Would, would that be that be right in a social society for us to say, wow, yours is fantastic, but yours isn't? Is, I, that, is that socialist? I mean, I, I, I think it would be. It wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily... Uh, I mean, yeah, I suppose there is the thing of, like, somebody always almost always gets a voice at the exclusion of somebody else uh, I, I I see that but you I'm know. not saying that I'm, I'm talking about value about what, what we what we value and how we value it well I mean it's I, different you know I'm saying that I value something because it meaning to me and emotion and it was, it was something that was special to me I'm not talking about somebody I don't know making a piece of artwork that we all lord over but but I mean I Works of art made by somebody you don't know can mean just as much to you as something some somebody has made specifically for you. So I think not just society would have to change, but the way that people think would would have to change. I mean, there's there's still something in me where I'd like to go and see a a, a show, a, you know, of live music, um, in you know, a, surrounded by other people, and and and. Uh, you know, I, d I don't think um, 
you know, I, if I did that, I'd, I'd feel aggrieved that the artist was on stage and I wasn't. All right, maybe a little bit, because you do sometimes look up and think, oh, that looks really fun. But you might not in a socialist society, your frame of mind might change so much that you don't actually find that desirable anymore. Uh, may, yeah, maybe, but I mean, uh, but, but you know, I, I just... I'm not saying you will. I'm just trying to <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, no, you're right, but I, I mean, there would have, there'd have to... There'd have to be a change, like, you know, in the way that the internet has changed the way that people read. It would have to be like that, basically, I think. Okay, uh, I think Marika has a question. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, I feel like people have said a few different things about the relationship between pleasure and politics, and I just wanted to ask you to expand on those thoughts. So I think maybe Rianne said something about, you know, once we've dealt with the politics, then art can just be for joy. Joe, you said that you wanted to still be able to read Virginia Woolf. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about... Um, Zizek says that cinema it was about teaching us how to desire. So when we engage with culture, it's not just we don't just take pleasure in it. It teaches us how to take pleasure in it in certain kinds of ways. And there've also been lots of conversations kind of going around about what do we do with art and culture when we know that the people who produce them are bad in various different ways. What do we do with Woody Allen films? So yeah, I'm kind of interested in what you think about is going on in the relationship between taking pleasure in art in culture and kind of what is going on there politically. <laughs> so I think there's like three levels of question in there. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know which one I would start with, and I was hoping someone else would start with it first. Um, I mean, in terms of what we do about Woody Allen films, <laughs> more, um, <laughs> the, the discourse uh, within within which that. Uh, that question sits. I mean, I, yeah, I edited a, a, a book on this, so I guess I should be able to give a definitive answer, but of course I can't right now. Um, uh, entirely possible to separate uh, the art from the artist, I think. Entirely possible. Um, whether it's desirable to do that, whether it's ethical, and whether it's right to do that is something for the individual um, to answer. Um, there are problematic songs that I enjoy, there are problematic films that I enjoy. Um, I do recognise that they're problematic, and I think um, that has to be part of part of my consumption, but others may disagree. I think you're obviously more conversant with Zizek than I am, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, as I understand what you're, what he's saying is that our relationship with art is always on some level kind of perverse, or something along those lines, because we're always being taught to, taught to desire things which are not necessarily in what might kind of hypothetically be thought of as our best interests. Something along those lines. Like art art yeah. occurs within specific material and kind of conditions and conditions of power, um, and because it does have on some level this, uh, an ideological function, you know, it is maybe teaching us what value is or teaching us how to understand value. Then, um, yeah, on, on some level, we're, we we might be acting against our best interest. But then you also have this thing with. I guess with Zizek, but your your subjectivity or your identity is always somehow kind of pinned to what there is ideologically at that moment in time anyway. So it might not be against your best interests in some other way. Um, so we, you know, I guess the question is something like, is it right to take pleasure in art? And I, I kind of fudge that by saying I would sometimes want to detach that from morality entirely. Um, I, I can't think about, maybe because I'm a child of the 90s and irony and, and all of this actually often quite bad stuff, I do find it hard to totally get away from you know, the fact that I want art to be a space away from moral questions on some level. 
and I know that's probably bad, but that's, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I also agree at other times that, that there is a kind of, you know, get, get more kind of Ruskinian about it and think there is an enormous space for kind of moral education in, in art, maybe. I was good at this one. <laughs> no, I mean, I think at the risk of repeating myself, I mean, I think the whole, you know, underpinning the, the, the whole, you know, the historical counterculture, that, you know, this thing, whatever you want to call it, that persisted from, uh, you know, the 60s till, I don't know, I was thinking the, the first Strokes album is <laughs> beginning of the end. Um, I, I mean, I think underpinning that whole historical m moment was, you know, this, this notion that the, the, the pleasure that the present pleasure principle uh, you know, could radicalise us and could change society, and then that would lead to political change. And uh, you know, as, as I've said, I think that has been shown to, you know, it hasn't worked. Uh, so, you know, it's a rather pat formula. But instead, I would offer a position whereby we have, you know, political change leading to pleasure, and that it's that way around. And that's the kind of uh, phase we're moving into. We're moving from a kind of aesthetic phase into a kind of political or ethical phase in which the kind of payoff, the reward for that is is pleasure rather than going to pleasure first for political change. Mm. Okay, we've got a question here. Yeah, I'm slightly concerned about like the panel being okay with so much of a disconnect between count uh, between culture or counterculture and politics. Um, Jack said earlier how like the capitalist right can subsume counterculture and you know take its edges off and just make it dull, but there's also like the fascist right, which are another counterculture, and if we don't have an explicitly left counterculture that is, uh, you know, based in the material world, then we're at huge risk of, uh, you know, other countercultures. I mean, we talked, somebody mentioned Morrissey earlier, there's a great example, you know, there's artists from the Bauhaus, which is the most, like, utopian cultural institution to ever exist that ended up working for the Nazis. Um, so uh, yeah, I just think we have to be much more certain that our counterculture is explicitly socialist. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like there, there, there is there is a danger that culture can become too uh, too detached from politics. Um, like I I mean earlier on I made a point about how it, it, it's great when you can have political art uh, kind of that isn't just straightforward prosaic agitprop that's just kind of vote for Jeremy Corbyn set to music uh, but at the same time if somebody did make a song that was basically vote for Jeremy Corbyn set to music and the music was good you know being really explicit in your politics can actually be a really, really good thing. I mean, again, for a millionth time, I'm just going to cite Neil Young, but four dead in Ohio, four dead in Ohio, it says it all. Like, like you don't, that song's got two verses, and then it's just la 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 in a repeat of the first verse. Um, you, you don't need to get into kind of flowery stuff sometimes, and so... I mean, again, this this is more more aesthetic, I suppose, more like more formal, but it, it, than uh, thinking about like people's attitudes or whatever. But yeah, like there there, there should be people should be uh, willing to raise the 
the red flag high, so to speak, and not be kind of embarrassed about politics, which, yeah, may result uh, that kind of embarrassed, oh, politics is a bit lame, isn't it? People are afraid to talk about it, and people who are interested in it then turn into Morrissey. I don't, maybe. <laughs> you know, with the kind of new fascist, new right aesthetic you're talking about, I think that what it is is so kind of describable in some ways that you don't necessarily need to oppose it with an explicitly kind of um, uh, an obviously politicised culture against that. I think that if you look at the kind of culture that has become tied up with the the kind of alt-right, the new right, you get a real commitment to an intensified form of really nihilistic irony all the time. It's all, you know, if you think how much Gamergate was a driver of the new right, uh, of the kind of alt-right ideologically, what they were fundamentally asking for in the first place was for um, everything to go on slipping, being allowed to slip away from political meaning. It was, you know, what they said was, oh, we don't want to have politics in, in our game. We don't want to have to, have to answer these questions. They wanted to commit themselves to irony. I think that you can, you know, you can have a, a culture which is, is rooted in a kind of just a more expansive vision of what people can do and a less exclusionary one without it having to be so kind of nakedly politicised. I think you can, you can answer... You know, there is an answer to the, the kind of counterculture of the alt-right, which just it lies in don't be horrifically ironic all the time. But could, have, could an alt-right or fascist culture not exist that also uh, uses that sort of expansive future that it's based? Yeah, but I think where, sorry to, to interrupt you, but I think, I think where the, the alt-right became materially uh, dangerous, um, which is ages ago now, like, I think just after Game Gave, it was when they uh, segued from ironic nihilism to earnest nihilism. Like suddenly, so th there was a sort of like, oh, we don't care if you call us Nazis, mm. we're ironic Nazis. Then suddenly it was like, oh no, we're, we're ironically ironic Nazis, we're actually earnest Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. All of this, so we have to sort of tackle them on material grounds as well as uh, through the meme wars or whatever um, whatever terrain mm. they choose to operate on. I mean, their colonisation of, uh, of YouTube, which I don't know if that's what you were talking about, but that does um, bother me. There is um, there's pushback, there are like left-wing, explicitly political YouTubers, like ContraPoints, I don't know, he's a really good mm. YouTuber that engages with um, with the alt-right, so stuff like that I think should be encouraged and supported, I guess. That's all yeah. we can do at the moment, though we should be doing more. I, I, I agree with that, but I see that more as a kind of material resistance. It is a cultural yeah, resistance yeah. in some ways, but it feels like that that's kind of very explicit level of political engagement, I think. And I know what you mean, there's a movement away from kind of ironic nihilism to actual nihilism, but it's still nihilism, isn't it? It's yeah, still, yeah. you know, it's still an aesthetic which is grounded in meaninglessness and, and kind of meanness, cruelty. Yeah and so on and I think that you can't this, this, this is awfully kind of liberal and idealistic but there is some space for a kind of a, an aesthetic which is grounded in something other than cruelty because that is not so easily co-optable by the people you're talking about I don't think everything has to be explicit and I think when everything is made explicit you, you risk treating people as though they're stupid um, I'm quite committed to that idea okay so we have a question over there and then we'll come to you um, while politics can be, as you say, explicitly um, expressed through art, there is also, I would say, sheer aesthetic joy that can be concurrently in the same work of art that you might disagree with the message of. Is there perhaps a place for the opening up of dialogue on multiple sides in separating the message from the aesthetic joy? So, 
Okay, I disagree with what this is being said here, but as a human being, we can both experience this and enjoy it, and then talk about what we like about it. Um, which, and while referring to perhaps the disagreement in, in the message, so it becomes an arena of discourse, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think of, of course this would, would be my answer. Um, I mean, I was thinking of, it's just like, you know, when all this thing with Michael Jackson blew up, uh, and there was, you know, the, the songs have been banned, and I just thought, you know, is it, should, should we really, when we listen to I Want You Back, are we, you know, is it really, of course we can, you know, of course we're not thinking about all of the terrible things that Michael Jackson has done, and of course that doesn't mean that we're denigrating, uh, you know, the experience of the people, you know, that he um, abused. You know, of course, we, we there is some. It is complicated, but we, of course, on some level, we can detach the two. The, the two things. I, I think I, I agree with you. Um, in in practice, I think I, I abide by um, by by that to very you know fairly arbitrary degrees. For example, um, again, because I got the comment earlier, we haven't used enough film examples, but. You know, I, I, I used to quite like Woody Allen films, but I haven't been able to watch them in the last few years, and I think a lot of that is just being like, that's true, isn't it? Like, just, just you know, a, a, a wokening whatever terrible word you want to use to describe it, but as you become more conscious of these things, that some things, um, you know, that, that I don't even know if it's a moral thing, but I, I can't watch those films. Um, Whereas Clint Eastwood films, like a director of a similar generation, I'd now not a sexual predator to my knowledge, but certainly a very reactionary man. I love them. Like, <laughs> really entertaining. Um, and, 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 and I don't think it's that, that, that I have some kind of rigid code where I'm like, no, I won't consume the work of sex offenders, but uh, consuming the work of, of right-wing reactionaries is fine. Um... I think I think most people kind of apply a fairly kind of like arbitrary, um, you know, uh, rule to, to to how they consume those things. But you know, I I think it, it's like perfectly fine to like consume problematic work, as long as you're not doing so as a kind of blind fan, and you not you look at it critically and you acknowledge that it is um, problematic. Uh, and I, were you kind of saying that about literature earlier, Joe? That you want you want there to be room for stuff uh, that doesn't uh, express your precise worldview. Well, I mean, in so far as I'd ever find it easy to, uh, easy to express my precise worldview. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that I mean, for, for me, I'd always contest the idea that a poem, a novel, or whatever has a kind of single uh, monological meaning anyway um, so I would say are we, are we contesting are we, are we saying I, I want to enjoy this work aesthetically that has a bad meaning well I'd say well surely in one way the aesthetic is the meaning to some extent um, I think that's a question in itself perhaps is there <laughs> a sort of pure platonic aesthetic that is without content that has form potentially I would say say with a poem there could be in terms of, say, rhythm and structure, 
um, I can appreciate a poem that completely disagrees with something, or with everything I think, in terms of its sheer sound and rhythm and structure. No, I mean, I think, I think there have been a lot of very good and, and persuasive arguments that things like sound and rhythm and structure themselves are political, that's where the political meaning is. Uh, you know, like lots of big political arguments about what lyric poetry does, going all the way back to romanticism, really. Um, but you know, at, at the same time, I think those arguments are always very complex and bifurcated, and, and I, I probably come down on the side of taking sheer pleasure in, uh, in lots of things which are saying probably quite bad things on some level. Maybe I'm not totally aware of you know what the bad things they're saying are. Yes, with the, the you know. What, what's odd here is that we're kind of trying to have a conversation across mediums or about all medium of yeah. media at one. Yeah. And I find yeah. that like talking about why people have you know contested the politics of the lyric poem alongside you know talking about the problematic nature of Woody Allen films quite weird because it's a sort of disjointed thing. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'm thinking like with Woody Allen, like the, the bad politics are not just his own the bad things he did. They're encoded into the films. Mm. It's like a whole kind of structure of power which is always obviously there in his films, mm. which is why they're hard to watch. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Yeah, it's, it's clearly it's clearly a, it's clearly a spectrum. It clearly differs across different media. So architecture, for example, is you know is almost always highly political. You know, a musical melody, you know, what is a political mel melody? I mean, think of, think of a melody that you like, you know, how could you possibly say this is political or even has any, any ethical dimension? It's, it's that, that is pure, pure form, in a sense, pure aesthetics. But perhaps only in terms of its association. So with the poetic um, um, example, maybe um, it has those associations because of the way it's being used. I don't know whether it would be integral to the form or whether it's how the form is being used. I probably have to think about that more, but I think it's a really interesting question. I don't feel like it's crackable in the next five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perhaps something for like the after party. Um, yeah. um, just sort of back to your point about um, alt-right culture. Given the standard understanding that counterculture is sort of a revolt against the quote unquote status quo um, of the sort of culture of the powerful. Could we not argue that um, given that Steve Bannon now has a position in the White House and that David Duke formerly supported Donald Trump's presidency that people like Tommy Robinson um, and Stephen Yaxley Lennon can run for, no sorry, um, and Carl Benjamin can run for MEP, um, that there isn't really a like counterculture of the right and that the right are now becoming sort of mainstream and that the only counterculture that should be talked about is the culture of the left or those trying to oppose fascism. Yeah, I mean, like you see, uh, it's Paul Joseph Watson, isn't it, with yeah. his with his conservatism is for new counterculture uh, takes, and he always picks the least convincing example. It's like uh, the uh, you know the the far right have said that we should uh, we should ban all protests against Trump, and that's why we're the new counterculture. And it's yeah. like I've got news for you about 1968. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. I I think you're right. I think these 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 guys are the establishment under another guise. They're always going to um, think that they're an oppressed minority, though, and they're going to think that they're um, they're fighting against cultural Marxist tyranny. And I don't think there's really any point in trying to waste our energy trying to dissuade them of that. We just need to um, be clear in ourselves that these people don't represent the oppressed minority. They represent very clear. Um, power dynamics which have existed for the past few centuries and um, yeah which we are yeah we're, we're opposing it's
like the um, the gradual absorption of the counterculture into mainstream culture gave them an expressive form mm. to in which to kind of initiate what they were doing. And if you look at how much the idea of the rebel has been tied up with the kind of American right for what since the 60s, since before the 60s, really, I guess um, we we maybe shouldn't be be surprised. It's like uh, a lot, a lot of countercultural stuff went over quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in reality, it isn't a counterculture, but it, but because the, I suppose, the liberal media is so gullible and will print anything, that's how they've been willing to represent it. Um. Okay. Oh, did you have a question? Yeah, yeah. your hand up. <laughs> so I feel like we've got time for one last question, and then we should probably, uh, everyone can have a break, and we, and a fag, and all of that before the rest of things happen. So, do you want to finish us off? Uh, I suppose the, the question is really about kind of cultural infrastructure, and so far as um, so, I don't imagine many of you are familiar with this on the panel, but people in the audience will be. There's a recently opened cultural quarter um, uh, about ten minutes walk away, where um, the kind of process that we were describing in Cardiff of kind of using culture to sort of as a sort of development strategy has sort of happened about twenty years late. Um, and the luxury flats came first, then the Nando's, and then after that, the theatre and the art gallery were both. And I suppose my question is, if we're kind of looking at um, you know, the idea of sort of trying to take cities and municipalities and push them further to the left, what sort of uh, arts policy or cultural policy would you expect from that? What's the kind of arts equivalent to Preston models, for instance? And so, as we look at what's happened up to this point, I mean, new labour cultural policy and how much money it's spent, or even mentioned, but that was always predicated on it being part of a, of a, of a property development strategy, part of the gentrification strategy. And we have a sort of particularly kind of lame, post-crap version of it here. Um, you know, I've been sort of particularly towards Alex on this, because you've written about these answers and about the kind of things like Northern arts that were set up in Newcastle in the 60s, you know, what should council be funding? What should they be trying to create? What, should, what you know, what would what would a socialist cultural policy in a city be like today? And can you talk loudly because we can't hear anything at the back? <laughs> sorry, we, we have tried, uh, but yeah, I mean, I that think sorry, <laughs> we have tried very hard. Um, yeah, again, I think you know, authorities should be just showering artists with money. <laughs> and letting them get on with it. I mean, I think, you know, in the case of Northern Arts, um, uh, the, the, case, the cases in which that worked were case in the cases that, that I'm familiar with in, in, in which the, the Northern Arts, the arts funding culture of the 60s and 70s worked was by giving poets a home, for example, giving them a council house um, rather than uh, you know, giving giving them a set of prescriptions and kind of building that into a, stra a strategy for kind of developing a particular part of town or so on and so forth. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there has to be a kind of laissez-faire, you know, you kind of uh, give artists time, money, resources, space, and then you let them get on with it. That would be, I mean, it's quite a pat answer and it's very reductive and doesn't quite cover um, all the bases, but I think that would be, that would be my, my response. Think about your invocation of the Preston model, um, Owen, and um, 
I was thinking about the anti-Preston model, which is what other Labour councils do very frequently. And I was thinking about, guess what town I'm going to talk about, because it's the only only one I ever do talk about. But I was thinking my hometown, Darlington, which under a Labour council for a long time, the cultural infrastructure has just gone and gone and gone to the point where it is it either has just become or is in the verge of becoming a town of almost 100,000 people without a library. Um, so, you know... What do we do? I mean, I suppose one very, very simple and, and naive and, and kind of gauche answer would be, well, we start doing things like making sure that towns have libraries as a, as a beginning and kind of to not see that on any way as some kind of like um, insidious kind of structure of gentrification. Have a, have a kind of um, open mindedness or optimism about these things. But the kind of arts-led gentrification of, of the 90s and early 00s and, and in Southampton of the last couple of years um, is obviously a, a largely bad model because it doesn't seem to very often give that much space, institutional space over to, uh, to local people, as you were saying, I think, and, and that has to be somehow the priority. Um, as a policy, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a policy person, but anyone else, someone else might be. Great. So uh, in a second, we'll thank our panellists. We are taking a break. We are back at five o'clock for the next session in the main hall. Is that right? No, it's five o'clock now. No, at five o'clock. Five o'clock, back <laughs> in the main hall. Um, come talk to us about our reading group uh, if you would like to participate in some left intellectual culture in Southampton. Um, and let's thank the panellists for a really interesting conversation. Thanks guys, thanks for, thanks for sharing. You kept it together really well. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I'm still recording. Uh, is that your